listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Mark 6, 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying John the baptizer had been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, It is Elijah. And others said, It is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself has sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared... Sorry, I'm getting notifications. For Herod feared John... (laughs) knowing that he was a that he was a righteous and holy man and he protected and he protected him when he heard him he was greatly perplexed and yet he liked to listen to him but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee when his daughter Herodias came in and danced she pleased Herod and his guest And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for his guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with with the orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thanks for that reading, Carrie. Hopefully I don't get any notifications on my iPad. (laughs) So that was kind of a dark reading, right? Man, you know, I come to church to worship God, to see my friends, to be uplifted. What's the story for today? Oh, a beheading, right? This, This is one of those stories that, like, whenever someone complains about the Old Testament for being too violent, whenever someone is like, let's not read the Old Testament, let's stick to the the New Testament. The Old Testament is too grisly, too violent. I like that peace and love of the New Testament. That's when I'm like, have you read the New Testament? (laughs) You know, like, the, the climax of this story is a guy dying on a cross for crying out loud. We're talking about the death of John the Baptist today. Um, you might have heard of John the Baptist. Uh, he's a big figure in the Gospels. He was the forerunner to Jesus. He was the prophet who announced the coming Messiah. Uh, Mark's Gospel actually begins 
with John the Baptist, all the way back in Act 1, Scene 1. Uh, this is, these are the opening words of the Gospel of Mark, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Do we remember this? This is the opening words of Mark's gospel. Uh, John the Baptist is really the first character we meet. Um, Then we don't hear anything about him for five chapters, like after this he baptizes Jesus, and then he's just gone. And then we get this flashback to his execution, which is kind of weird. King Herod has heard about all the stuff Jesus has been doing, all this powerful stuff, healing people, raising the dead, casting out demons. And King Herod, when he hears about this, gets terrified because he thinks that John the Baptist has been risen from the dead. And so we get this flashback. Uh, We learn that Herod had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. That's just too juicy not to talk about, right? (laughs) Like, we got to get into this. Um, Let's do it. The way we're going to do this, um, I'm going to show you the Herod family tree to kind of understand what's going on here, because there were about a dozen Herods from history, like over time, and three different Herods show up in the New Testament, but they're always just called King Herod, so it gets a little confusing. Let's look at this family tree and see if we can figure it out. The first King Herod was Herod the Great. We've got a picture of him here. There he is. Not a bad-looking guy. Um, he was the king, we should put king in scarecrows, of Judea from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. You don't have to remember the numbers. There's not going to be a test. This is the King Herod who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. If you remember the story of the wise men who follow the star and they show up at Herod's palace looking for this king who's been born, and Herod's like, there's no new king here. And then Herod has all the baby boys under age two in Bethlehem killed trying to get Jesus. That's this Herod. That's Herod the Great. Not a great guy. (laughs) All right, don't let the name confuse you. Um, Herod the Great was friends with Mark Anthony, close personal friends with Mark Anthony. His dad was buddies with Julius Caesar. Good reminder that these are real historical figures that we're talking about here. Um, And because of all of his political connections, the Romans appointed King Herod as the king of Judea, the Judean province. He was basically a puppet king working for Rome. Are we following so far? Awesome. Um, Herod the Great was half Jewish and half Greek, um, so he had the support of the Romans and some of the Jews, 
But to shore up his rule, to give himself more legitimacy, he married a princess named Miriam. This was his first wife. Now, uh, Princess Miriam is not the Miriam from the Old Testament, like Moses' sister. That's, this is centuries later. Um, but to kind of gloss over a lot of history, Princess Miriam was basically like a distant descendant of King David of sorts. She was like the closest royalty to have claim to that, that kingdom from the Old Testament. So Herod marries Princess Miriam to secure his rule. Um, Miriam was super popular. Her Greek name was Mary, which is why half the women we meet in the New Testament are named Mary. They're named after this super popular princess, Princess Miriam, okay? Now, Herod had other wives. Of course he did. Um, Herod had other wives, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, But more importantly, Herod and Miriam had two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. Um, Alexander and Aristobulus live into adulthood. They're heirs to the throne. But then near the end of his life, King Herod has his first wife, Miriam, executed. He didn't like how popular she was with the people, more popular than him, so he kills her. Then, on his deathbed, Herod the Great orders the execution of his two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, to keep them from taking the throne after his death. So not a good dad, all right? Um, Now, I know what you're all thinking at this point. Oh, no, who's going to get the throne, right? No. Um, This is where Herod's other wives came in. Herod had a bunch of other wives and a bunch of other kids. Uh, The four most important ones, though, are Herod II, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip. I'll let you guess who the outsider was. (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, After Herod the Great dies, his kingdom gets split in four and divvied up between these sons, and Herod Antipas gets Galilee, the region where Jesus and John the Baptist are from. Herod Antipas is the Herod from this story, the one who kills John the Baptist. He's the same Herod who takes one look at Jesus after he's been arrested and sends him back to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. Which means that if you've ever seen Jesus Christ Superstar, Herod Antipas is this guy. Like four people get this. The rest of you are just very confused. I love it. See Jesus Christ Superstar. That's like a 40-year-old movie. It's, it's time. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, now, um, Herod Antipas' wife, who we meet in this story, is a lady named Herodias. So, of course, she's a relative. Um, let's see where Herodias falls. She was the daughter of Aristobulus. Before he died, before his dad had him killed, Aristobulus had a daughter who he named after Grandpa. That's nice. Um, This is the Herodias from our story who asks for John the Baptist's head. Um, Herodias married Philip, her uncle. Ew. (laughs) Um, They got married, Herodias and Philip. Um, By all accounts, it was a loveless marriage, so uh, that didn't work out. Um, So Herodias fell in love with her other uncle, Herod Antipas, and they got married. They got married. Um, Herodias left Philip, didn't divorce him or anything like that. She just went to live with her other uncle, who then married her, because the heart wants what it wants, right? Come on. 
That is the Herod family tree. That's like a quarter of the Herod family tree. John the Baptist is not happy with this situation. Um, he was just as disgusted with all of this as we are. Um, we actually know this from history. There were Jewish historians, uh, one of which is Josephus, who talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was going around saying some really nasty things about Herod Antipas and Herodias. He was saying that Herod should not be king. He's a puppet of Rome. His dad was a murderous tyrant. Now he's illegally married to his brother's wife. Herod only follows the law when it's convenient for him. So Herod takes John the Baptist and throws him in prison, which brings us to this story. It's Herod's birthday. He's throwing a big party. He's got all these wealthy, powerful guests there. He's drunk. Never a good idea. Um, and Herodias's daughter, who according to the language, the, the Greek being used here, is about 12 years old. She's right on the cusp of puberty. Um, she does this dance for her drunk stepdad slash uncle and all of his powerful friends. Herod is so pleased by this, he offers this girl whatever she wants up to half his kingdom, so half of a quarter of a kingdom. She goes to her mother Herodias, and she comes back requesting the head of John the Baptist on a platter, which is where we get the saying, what's the saying? Head on a silver platter, right? That's from this story. Um, Herod does it. He has John executed, and then he has John's head presented to Herodias and to all these guests on a platter. Personally, that's not a banquet I would really enjoy very much. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know about you, but like once the severed head shows up, that would just kill my appetite. Um, what is this story doing in the gospel? Why does Mark open on John the Baptist, not talk about him for five chapters, and then give us his death via a flashback? Why is this story here, this dark, grisly story? There's actually a number of things this story is doing. Um, the big one is foreshadowing. It's showing us what kings like Herod do to men like John the Baptist, what's going to happen to Jesus. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing there. Um, this story also introduces the idea of resurrection, right? Herod hears about Jesus and thinks that someone's come back from the dead. Kind of a little ironic foreshadowing. This story is also showing us authoritarian dictators doing what authoritarian dictators do. Because this was part of life back then, living under the rule of tyrants with unchecked authority who maintained power through violence. That was life for Mark and his audience. Now, we could go in a lot of different directions with this. We could, like, spiritualize this. We could talk about the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. In normal times, that might be where we'd go. But these are not normal times, right? I would be remiss. It would be pastoral malpractice at a time like this, with everything happening in the world, to teach a story like this and not talk about the dangers of authoritarianism because it's glaring. It's looking at us in the face with the death of John the Baptist. Governing structures that put all power and authority in the hands of a single person or party. 
Um, most Christians in America don't have a very well-formed theology of government. Um, we might have like a theological view of like sex or ethics. We could probably point to what the Bible says about, I don't know, maybe uh, a topic like baptism or what to do with your money. But most Christians don't have a very well-formed theology of government. It's not something we think about a lot. We like democracy, but that's mainly because we live in one, right? And we don't like people telling us what to do. As Americans, we don't like tyrants. We like democracy. But that's cultural. That's a patriotic sort of thing. That's not always for religious reasons. What does God think of authoritarians? What's God's opinion of how people govern themselves? Fascism, monarchy, democracy, does God, does God have a dog in that fight? Does God care? What is God's opinion of Vladimir Putin? That's a big question. What's God's opinion of any fascist dictator who invades other countries and rules through violence? The Bible gives us an answer to that question, and it's not good news for authoritarians. Um, Almost every time we meet an authoritarian ruler in the Bible, almost every time, they're the villain. They're the bad guy. Think about the bad guys of the Bible, the big bads. You know these people. Uh, Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. Um, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Pontius Pilate, Herod. I love that picture of Herod. These are the big villains in the Bible. What do they have in common? They're authoritarians. They're essentially fascists. Um, Even the kings of Israel are mostly bad, mostly evil. Even good kings like David and Solomon end up abusing their power, exploiting the weak, and coming under God's judgment. They usually end in ruin. Way back at the beginning, toward the beginning of the story, book of uh, 1 Samuel, when the Israelites go before God and they ask for a king, God warns them, that this is not how God wants his people governed. Check this out. This is from 1 Samuel 8. Get that picture of Herod off there. It's disgusting. Uh, I shouldn't body shame Herod. I'm sorry. Um, This is from 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 11. This is God's warning when the Israelites ask for a king. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you. God doesn't like kings very much. God is not a fan of tyrants. The Bible 
is anti-fascist. Let that sink in for a second. And if you want to know why, if you want to know why God has such stern words for authoritarian rulers, look at what authoritarians do. Look at the death of John the Baptist. This man is killed because of a drunken promise to a 12-year-old girl, and he loses his head. Look at what's happening in Ukraine right now. At least 600 civilians have been killed, probably many more. The UN puts the estimate at closer to like 1,200, 1,300, along with thousands of soldiers on both the Ukrainian and Russian sides. Those are all people who should be alive today, and they're not because of one man with too much power. It's really easy to announce this stuff when it happens in another country, half a world away, from a distance. Like, ah, it's terrible what they're doing. It's a lot harder when stuff like that filters in here, in our own midst. It's easy to take a swing at Russia. I will get zero angry emails about that. But point out that the Supreme Court decimated voting rights, the Voting Rights Act, back in 2013. And southern states across the south responded by cutting the number of polling places in black neighborhoods. And that's being political. We don't want to talk about that so much. Talk about what's happening to the LGBTQ community right now. Um, So far this year, 2022, there have been 170 bills introduced in 25 states aiming to limit the rights of gay, lesbian, and trans people. 170 bills. We're only two and a half months into the year. Um, In Texas now, parents of transgender kids are being investigated for child abuse. That's new. That's been the last couple weeks. Um, If your kid comes out of the closet as uh, gender fluid, gender questioning, anything like that, the state of Texas is now taking funds which would normally be used to investigate actual child abuse, and they're investigating you and your family. A lot of news the past couple weeks about this don't say gay bill. That's what um, activists are calling it down in Florida. It passed last week in the Senate, state Senate. This is a bill that, among other things, will force teachers to out gay students to their families. That's pretty serious. It'll also ban elementary schools from even talking about or acknowledging the existence of LGBTQ plus people. That's in Florida. Um, My daughter's in first grade, so this hits home for me. Makes me really glad I live in New York. Um, last week, we got an email from her teacher at Ginther um, just giving us a heads up that they're doing a unit on families. They're talking about different families, how families can look different. The kids are drawing pictures of their families. Uh, some have a mom and a dad. Some just have a mom. Some have two dads. Um, Miriam told me they even talked about families in Ukraine. And the kids, the first graders, talking about what it must be like to have to leave, to have to flee because it's not safe for your family to stay where they are. I love that my daughter is having that conversation. I love that my kid has a safe place to talk about that stuff, to learn about that stuff with peers who come from different backgrounds. But that lesson is now illegal in the state of Florida. 
And it's illegal because there are people, many of them Christians, who want to erase gay, lesbian, and trans people from existence. This is what authoritarians do, you guys. If you study history, this kind of stuff usually doesn't end very well, and God has something to say about this. You cannot worship at an LGBTQ plus affirming church like ours and turn a blind eye to this stuff. That's not LGBTQ plus affirming. We can't claim fellowship with black Christians. We can't pat ourselves on the back for belonging to the same denomination as Martin Luther King Jr. and ignore the cries of black churches in the South over voting rights. And we can't claim moral authority when countries in Europe are being invaded if we don't take a strong stand against authoritarian tendencies, impulses here at home. That's just being consistent. As Christians, we need to have a view of government that is shaped by Scripture and modeled on Christ, and that leaves no room for tyranny. Now, I know this church pretty well. We've had conversations like this before, and I know the question that always comes up when we talk about this stuff. What am I supposed to do about it, right? What can we actually do? What difference can we make? What does it look like for us in the 21st century to follow in the tradition of John the Baptist and take a stand against authoritarianism? I'm happy to say there's actually a lot we can do, and it all comes down to truth. Authoritarianism thrives in darkness, but the truth will set you free. If you want to take a stand against this stuff, start by telling the truth of what God thinks about authoritarians. A lot of Christians don't know this stuff. A lot of our brothers and sisters and siblings in the faith have not connected the dots from Pharaoh to Nebuchadnezzar to the kings of Israel to Pilate to Herod. They haven't lined that up. We don't have a very theologically formed view of government. We see this reflected in survey data, which has consistently been finding in the past five, six years that white Christians in America are the most likely group to support authoritarian-leaning policies. Things like crackdowns on voting access, um, uh, preventing people of certain religions from entering the country. White Christians are more likely to support that stuff than black Christians, than Christians in other countries, than non-Christians. That tells me we have a serious problem in the church. So read up on what the Bible actually has to say about tyrants. The book of Exodus would be a fantastic place to start. The book of Mark is a fantastic place to start. Um, And then speak up. When you hear a fellow Christian, um, a family member or a friend, espousing some of these views, when you see posts on Facebook that are terrifying, don't get sucked in to the partisan political thing. That is so boring, so over that. Make it a faith discussion. Talk about scripture. Talk about what happened to John the Baptist. Ask them their opinion of Pharaoh. Help them see that God has something to say about this stuff. And when you have these conversations, do it in love. 
Speak the truth of what God thinks about authoritarians. Second thing to do is tell the truth about the authoritarians themselves. This is what John got in trouble for. Um, I have been deeply moved by the reports coming out of Ukraine. These incredibly brave reporters um, on the ground who are capturing images of bombed out buildings, talking to resistance fighters, interviewing families in train stations. That truth being spoken is so important because authoritarianism thrives in darkness. Vladimir Putin is not a genius. He's not a brave crusader fighting to defend Christian Europe. He's a tyrant and a sinner just like you and me. John the Baptist spoke the truth about King Herod, and he paid the ultimate price. I don't know if I'd be that brave in the same situation, but I pray that I might be. Third thing we can do is embody the truth by standing with those who suffer under authoritarian regimes and their policies. Send money to refugees fleeing Ukraine. Um, There's all sorts of ways you can do it. You can Google it. Our denomination is doing a collection right now. Um, You can write OGHS, that's One Great Hour of Sharing Ukraine Relief, on your check or envelope. Drop it in the joy box. Put it in the memo line of an online uh, donation. We will make sure that gets to our partners over in Europe who are working to help Ukrainian refugees. Um, You can give money to nonprofits working to protect voting rights and LGBTQ rights, especially in the South. You can be a safe person for a gay kid to talk to. Magnify that love of God for the outsiders in your midst by forming relationships. If you know a teacher who's probably getting some heat for letting students talk about their families and the makeup of their families in class, send, reach out to that teacher. Tell them, tell them you appreciate them. Tell them you're praying for them. Ask what you can do to help them and support them. Check in on friends in marginalized communities when you see this stuff on the news. Ask how you can pray for them. Let them know that you have their back. And don't forget to pray for your enemies. Pray for Putin. Pray for these state legislatures in the South. Pray for God to give wisdom and compassion to these leaders. Pray for repentance and conversion. Pray for the friends who scare you with what they post on Facebook. And pray for God to open your eyes to any evils you might be blind to. There are all sorts of things we can do, simple ways to stand against authoritarianism and support those at the margins, and it all centers on truth. Let's pray. God, help us to be a people of truth. Help us to be a community of truth, a fellowship of truth. Lord, help us to live into that freedom that you created us for by listening to your words in Scripture, standing with those who are at the margins, and by telling the truth about authoritarians, wherever they are.
Lord, give us the courage of John the Baptist and let everything we do be marked by the love and grace of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.